Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Today promises to be significantly less dramatic than yesterday on Jay's Talk Plus, where we had to come to you with a three-hour Charlie Montoyo's been let go show. Today, though, we get to, I mean, there's going to be some Montoyo stuff. Let's let's be honest. We got to sort through that a little bit. Uh, we have to talk to some people who were around the team yesterday, feel out the vibe there, figure out what, hear what players were saying, what other coaches were saying, what the energy was like. On the field, things couldn't have gone much better. The Jays win. John Schneider debuts the manager. He's 1-0. And of course, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Home run, uh, hits a home run um, because isn't that the way it would go? One game after the challenge, don't challenge drama, even though they won that game as well. I want to talk more about what went into that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. home run because in addition to it just being a ridiculous piece of hitting, some of what we've talked about this week with people like Chris Black was apparent in that plate appearance. Not only is that Vlad's uh, otherworldly ability to hit a baseball and hit one very far, but that was also a breaking ball in the zone, which if you remember back to explain it block on Tuesday was something we highlighted as a, a big change in the way pitchers had been approaching Vladimir Guerrero Jr. lately. A lot of breaking balls in the zone challenging him. He was ready for that one. Zach Wheeler might have missed his spot by a little bit, but he didn't miss it by much. And Vlad just kind of one-handed poked it 102 miles an hour and over the fence. It's a fun one there. The Jays win. Ross Stripling is excellent once again. Kevin Gosman returns tonight. And the Jays are looking to build some positivity here, some momentum maybe into the All-Star break. They'll get to do that against a Kansas City Royals team that is not only very bad, but is also missing 10 players who will hit the restricted list because they don't meet Canada's vaccine requirements. And if you want to say it differently, they don't meet the U.S.'s vaccine requirements either. Um, 10 players, including the players who normally hit one, two, four, five, seven, and 8, in that lineup, that includes their starting catcher, which is notable because their backup catcher is also on the restricted list. They've got two starters on the restricted list, so we still got a big old TBD for who's getting the start for the Royals tonight. Also, like nine TBDs up and down the uh, up and down the the roster as we await to hear who is uh, coming in to fill in for those ten names. A fully healthy Royals team would be a spot on the schedule that the Jays might look at. And think, hey, that's a that's a spot where we can pack a couple wins in. We can head into the All Star break with that one and nine stretch put behind us. You take a Kansas City Royals team that is without two fifths of its starting rotation, and as Nick Ashbourne pointed out earlier, fifty seven percent of the runs they've scored this year uh, not available in this game. You better you better get those wins. Uh, Kevin Gosman against TBD. You'll have Alec Manoa on the weekend. Jose Brios again, who's looked a little better last couple times out. And you'd hope that some of this positive regression you've been waiting on from the offense 
starts to come through, not just because Charlie Montoya is no longer in the manager chair, but because these are really good players who haven't been playing like really good players. I'm sure you have lots of questions and comments left today that we didn't get to yesterday or you've developed since then. You can keep those coming. Text us at 590-590. We'll try to sprinkle them in throughout the show. What did you see differently last night? What do you want to see differently moving forward? Do you think Andrew Benintendi would get vaccinated if the Jays tried to trade for him? Uh, You still got enough time before the trade deadline. Uh, It's a bit of a bit of a silly one. But we'll talk to we'll, we'll get some insight into that. We'll talk to Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated later about the Royal side of things. We got Caleb Joseph coming on later in the show as well. Someone who played under Charlie Montoyo, someone who was a self-proclaimed vibes coordinator at times in his career to give us some insight onto what the vibes may have been like and how they may shift from here. Um, but to help us right now sort through what yesterday was like down at Rogers Center. It's our pal Caitlin McGrath from The Athletic. Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I got a little distracted right before we came on because DeAndre Ayton signed a max uh, offer sheet with the Indiana Pacers, which takes Phoenix basically out of the Kevin Durant sweepstakes. And now my brain is all just trade scenarios. But uh, <laughs> we we persevere. Um, yesterday was a dramatic one. You went into the clubhouse shortly after Ross Atkins and John Schneider spoke to the media down at Rogers Center. What was the vibe in there, you know, immediately following that presser, as I imagine players were still kind of sorting through the news and Ross Atkins' speech to them? Yeah, I mean, the vibe was that there was not many guys in the clubhouse. I think there, I think there was like two um, initially that I saw. So, um, you know, and to be fair, it was a little bit later because of um, when the clubhouse normally opens and guys are probably doing their regular schedule. So we were like about a half an hour later, which typically is like when they might be filing out anyway. But yeah, it was a pretty um, empty scene at first in the clubhouse. But, um, you know, as the day went on, the, these players are creatures of habit and they have to kind of continue their daily routines and so you know in some ways it it modeled uh, a typical day here and in other ways it was you know completely atypical um definitely a big news day you know you see the huge uh scrums of media a lot you know double triple the amount of media that are here which typically happens on those types of days so um you know it wasn't a normal day um in that sense but you know for the players after dealing with you know the the sort of initial news of it um yeah i mean they are you know pros they have to go you know through their day and, and get ready for the game i know you included in your piece at the athletic which was excellent very good wrap up and snapshot of what yesterday was like uh you included a couple quotes from players that you know you granted anonymity so they could speak openly um what was the general sentiment from players uh, and obviously, of course, you don't have to, to name names and reveal the sources. But what was the sentiment from talking to a few guys about, you know, the timing of this or, or the move in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, first and foremost, people were not, you know, upset to see that a man lost his job. I think that the players felt accountable in the sense of they knew if they were playing better, you know, this wouldn't have happened. I think everybody and it's not like every player here has been through a managerial change especially in season like they're not 
they're not completely rare, but they're not common either. And so for some guys, it was a completely new experience. And so, you know, there's um, that to digest. It's not a good thing when this happens to a team. It means things aren't going well. And this Blue Jays team was not a team that you thought a few months ago that they were going to be in this place. You know, we didn't think that this was going to be an uneven type of year where there was going to be this kind of struggle. So I think initially there's, you know, that kind of emotion tied to it. But I think that, um, you know, in some respect, um, there was maybe a readiness for a different voice. Um, and, you know, that's nothing obviously against Charlie. I think everybody um, totally loved him as a person. Um, but I think just when you're looking at maybe the direction of where the club is at now, where it's going, um, it seems that maybe some of the tactics and the sort of um, approach that he had um, maybe needed to be altered or maybe it just kind of ran its course with this club and there was um, a need for maybe a change in voice. And I think John Schneider is a different voice. And obviously the front office decided that this was the time that, you know, they had a a guy in the organization that they viewed as an alternative. Um, They viewed as, you know, someone they wanted to see how he would handle the the reins of this team. And so he'll get that opportunity now. Still just 42, too. And he's been in the org for, for 20 years. He's won championships in the minor leagues with some of this core. What is the, the biggest challenge for John Schneider going to be transitioning from bench coach to manager? And I imagine your answer has something to do with the relationship with players and how that dynamic shifts when you change role. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it's going to be the same. And, like, John Schneider has experience managing, albeit not in the major leagues. Obviously, this is his first opportunity to manage in the major leagues. But he's been a minor league manager, a minor league manager of many of the players that he's currently managing. Um, You know, he came up through the system with a lot of these guys. And so they would be familiar with his management or, yeah, managerial style. Um, maybe it's a little different in the minor leagues, obviously. Um, and it's different as he's sort of evolved and, and changed in terms of his, you know, how he approaches his job and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I think that if I was to, you know, guess at a challenge or sort of try to um, figure it out for myself, I would say, yeah, it's, it's different being – Um, maybe the number two guy where you can maybe be more of a friend or maybe of like, you know, if the manager has to come down and say, you know, this is, these are the rules. And then maybe the number two guy can come in and swoop in and say, okay, this is, you know, this is, you know, what it really means. You can sometimes kind of straddle the line more carefully of being a friend and a coach. And obviously he can still do that as a manager. um, But there's going to be times where he's going to have to, you know, have a stern voice and like, I'm not going to say like lay down the law as if that needs to be done, but you know, you can't, you can't be everyone's friend all the time necessarily in this type of job, you know, like you do have to be the guy in charge. Um, and so that's probably going to be an adjustment for him, but certainly one that I think that he would be totally ready for prepared for and knows that it's, it's ahead for him. You know, I think he knows what the job of the manager is. And obviously the blue Jays have a lot of faith that, he'll be able to make that transition seamlessly because they're handing him, handing him this team um, at a pretty crucial point. You know, he doesn't have time to sort of learn on the job necessarily. I mean, he's going to learn on the job, but he's got to like, you know, get this team going right here, right now. He does. And he's, uh, you know, the laying down the law side, even if he's a, a very likable guy and jovial for the most part, you know, he had a reputation in the minors for being a little fiery. We've seen him getting tossed from games when he's not the manager. Uh, He does look like the big mean 
prison guard from Orange is the New Black. So he does have, you know, the look to intimidate if that's necessary, which I'm sure it's not because they're all adults. Um, But I'm interested to see how how that all works out. Caitlin, during Ross Atkins' presser yesterday, you asked him a couple really good questions. And the one I wanted to follow up with you about was you asked him about the timeline for this decision. I I think we all had uh, Mark Budzinski on our mind when we were trying to figure out if this was going to happen and if it was, then when um, you asked Ross Atkins about the timeline, he said it, it really only came together in the last 24 hours. Do you think that that's accurate? Is that kind of just misspeaking? Because it feels like that probably isn't true. Yeah, and that answer was, um, you know, these these types of things with the uh, in these kinds of settings are kind of getting these sort of vague answers. And I think in that same answer, it was like, yeah, 24 hours, but also it could have been days into weeks and weeks, but it doesn't really matter how long it took kind of thing. And it's like, well, how long did it take? I don't know. Like, I mean, I would say that uh, I'm sure that it was in the works for a while. I mean, how sort of like active they were thinking about it, maybe um, you could argue a little bit, you know, maybe it became more in the forefront more recently, maybe totally in the last 24 hours, it was really at the forefront, but certainly this type of huge weighty decision, like if you're Ross Atkins, um, you're consulting with people, you're thinking about it, you're taking your time to make this decision. So um, no, I don't think it's believable that it just all just came together in 24 hours, because I don't even think you would want that. I don't think you would want the GM necessarily to be making this type of decision um, just in a 24-hour span. I think you'd want him to sort of sit on it and think about it and maybe consult some people. And so I think in the last 24 hours, what he was saying is that when it was finalized, they had sort of made their decision. Like, um, But certainly I think there was weeks of thought of, you know, maybe this is a direction we're going to have to go if our team is not performing the way we want them to, if we're seeing this kind of inconsistency and all these types of things. Like, maybe this is a lever that we have to pull. And so I would assume that these are things that he was thinking about and maybe not just him, other people in the organization as well. Um, but, you know, it, it obviously came together recently. And, and I think that was the awkward thing somewhat about it is the timing of the Buzinski, you know. And I, I think from the outside looking in, it did look a little bit kind of cold and cruel to do it at this time. And that's why I wanted to ask the question, just to give Ross Atkins the opportunity to answer that question. Because I know just looking at my Twitter timeline, that's something that people were talking about. So you might as well ask him and give him the opportunity to say, why now? That's true. And in answering that and other questions, Ross Atkins kind of revealed what I think a lot of people would have assumed. And, you know, something people still weren't entirely satisfied with from an answer perspective and and what i mean by that is ross atkins put a lot of it on himself as well he did take try to take some accountability said it's a collective uh setback and and that starts with him the charlie montoyo lever as he called it is one that you know every general manager knows that they have that to pull once but it's rare that you have it to pull twice with your own guys um, you know, I, I don't think you count John Gibbons here because that was inherited. But um, in terms of Ross Atkins and where's he, where he's at right now, do you get the sense that he's starting to feel pressure to ahead of the trade deadline as well? And just to, you know, I mean, obviously to shake things up, he, he fired the manager. But where is Ross Atkins level of urgency in general right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I you know don't know intimately, but if I had to guess, I would think that, um, as you say, once you get rid of the manager, that's sort of the one in-season um, shift that you can pull or one of the bigger ones that you can pull and say, okay, we're going to try this now. And so, you know, if this doesn't work, and, and that is to say that obviously it wasn't Charlie wasn't playing on the field. You know, he wasn't the one that was blowing a, a you know an eighth inning lead or anything like that. Um, you know, we acknowledge that often in these managerial firings, it's you know it's it's as you say a, a collective setback from the organization, and it wasn't just Charlie, but this is he's the fall guy for now. But yeah, I think that you know Ross Atkins is feeling some pressure to have this team be as good as everyone thought it would be, um, and. You know, at the deadline, obviously, there are pretty clear priorities. I think we all look at the pitching staff and say it needs some help, um, probably on the starting side and probably on the relief side, I think. Um, and I think there is pressure because this is a win-now team, and we saw them pretty pretty aggressive at the deadline last year in an effort to make that playoff push, and they fell one win short. And, you know, for, for all the good that they did last season, ultimately they didn't reach their goal, and we thought they came into this season looking much better equipped to reach that goal and it's not to say that it's out of reach by no means is it uh they still have a very good chance to make the playoffs i think their odds and on fan graphs and these types of things are you know still among the best in their own division even if it's all kind of bunched up right now in standings i think that their schedule um is easier than the red Sox and the rays i think they still have a really good chance to get in the, play, in the playoffs obviously um but yeah it's going to be pressure on and ross to deliver and to you know fill that bullpen with some swing and miss to add some starting depth because if they don't miss the, if they miss the playoffs this year, I mean, there's really no excuses for missing the playoffs this year. I think. Yeah. I I would agree with you there with where they're at timeline wise, with where they're at talent wise. Um, So one thing that could help the Jays here and give Ross Atkins some breathing room and some clarity ahead of the August 2nd trade deadline and just send everyone into the all-star break in a little bit better of a mood would be to rail off a six game win streak, uh, two down two in the books. Uh, Ross stripling does it again last night. Kaylin, I know you, you were texting me earlier joking, like, are we going to talk about Ross stripling? Ha ha. But I do want to talk about Ross stripling just for a minute. Uh, I imagine everyone's focus was a little more on writing their stories and and reporting it out yesterday, but Ross Stripling turns in another great one. Seven innings, uh, two runs, but zero earned because uh, the the home run came after uh, Bo and Vlad misconnected on a throw from short to first. Ross Stripling also got to go seven innings. Are we starting to inch toward... Ross Stripling is just a regular starting pitcher and not kind of the, I don't want to say kid gloves, but the twice through the order cap that we've seen uh, so far. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, uh, you know, initially a lot of that was just due to the lack of buildup that he had. And you wanted to be careful with, you know, building his pitch count up and all these types of things. And so, you know, initially it was not just a like, Um, strategy thing. It was, you know, an arm health thing. It was, you know, we can't stretch this guy too much, but at this point he's been a starter. He's been a starter longer than he's been a relief pitcher. Um, Not just this year, but for the club, I think I asked him a question once about going between the roles and he's like, I mean, yeah, I know how to go between the roles, but realistically I've been a starter most of the time that I've been here. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Um, But anyway, uh, Hmm. but yeah, I think, you know, yesterday someone asked John Schneider about this. um, And I, you know, his comments were kind of like, 
they were judging by sort of the in-game um, feel of it. Like his velocity was still good. His pitch count was where it needed to be. You know, it. You know, hitters were still getting fooled by him. You know, so it, I think that the game kind of dictated um, that he could go later. I think in his previous start, like it wasn't so much like that. I think Seattle put up a lot of really long at bats and grinded against him. There was a lot of base runners and stuff like that. So in that situation, the, the game dictated that he wasn't going to go as deep. This time, um, you know, he was able to. And so I would say that that's what to look for, I think, in the future with Ross Stripling. I don't think it's going to be like a hard cap, like this guy can never um, see a lineup for the third time through. I think it's just going to be really dependent on, you know, how's he looking? How, how is the outing going? It's going to be really game-dependent, lineup-dependent, all that kind of stuff. So we look ahead to tonight. Kevin Gosman is back. Um, what is the confidence level that his foot thing is behind him? And is he going to be on a shorter leash um, just because of the sensitivity around that bone bruise? Good question. I mean, obviously good sign that he's p- pitching today because I think like he's, he's a smart guy. He knows how long a season is. He's not going to sort of jeopardize his long-term health to make one start before the all-star break as important as these all his starts are and he wants to make all his starts like obviously we saw him you know not be ready initially not be ready a couple times already so you know he's being cautious so the fact that he's starting i think i would trust that he's obviously feeling right because he knows how to feel he knows how he has to feel to be pitching so certainly that's a good sign i think of course you're going to be monitoring it carefully um if he looks awkward if he says he's not feeling great you know, I think the team has to um, proceed with caution here, especially because we know the all-star break coming up. He's going to have time to rest it anyway. Um, and obviously everything about the imaging and everything has come back, and we know it's just a bone bruise. We know that's just all that it is. So I would certainly expect there to be sort of caution around him. But I'm sure if he's pitching well, like, you know, they're going to let him go. He's, he's a you know pro out there. He can pitch deep mm-hmm. into games. And so, you know, I think, again, like I would sort of echo what I just said about Ross Stripling, but in a different context, it's just see how the game is going. See how he's pitching. What is the game telling you about how deep he can go in the game? What is his body telling you about how deep he can And what is he telling you about how deep he can go in the game? I would agree with that. I think that's the sound strategy. Uh, Caitlin, you mentioned all-star break ahead. The Jays have four more games. Are you getting a break? Because you really deserve one. <laughs> I think I will get a couple of days off. But the, the sort of difficult thing um, now for, for all of us is uh, the draft is coming up in yeah. a couple of days. So um, normally the, the draft is at a different time of year or it used to be at a different time of year. Um, now it's a bit later and it's coinciding with the all-star um, festivities. So I will get a break. I think midweek I have um, a few things planned, not exciting things like Aaron <laughs> things, but <laughs> you know, a girl's got to get her hair cut. So that's on, that's on the to-do list next week. <laughs> well, I hope you get a little bit more time than that. The, I will say the best thing the NBA ever did for us when, when I was uh, on the NBA side was they moved the, the trade deadline used to be right after the all-star break. And so all-star break was like rumor central. Like it was constant chaos and nonsense in the way that like the good nonsense that only the NBA can do. Uh, but moving the trade deadline to before the all-star break was uh, very welcome. I hope the league revisits the timing of the draft for you, Caitlin, uh, but keep up all the great work. I uh, hope you get a breather at some point next week. And thanks for taking the time out today. Of course. Thank you. Appreciate it. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. A couple great pieces on the Charlie Montoyo situation yesterday. One, as soon as the news came down, kind of everything you need to know. And then one last night um, with some reporting, with some 
comments from players and people around the organization, a really good inside look at Charlie Montoyo being let go and what went into that and what the energy around the team is like following it. <laughs> Keegan Matheson, our pal who was on yesterday, just tweeted out, uh, hello from Roger Center where the Jays will open their series against some members of the 35 and 53 Royals. That's what we're going to talk about next with Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated. The Jays get going on this four-game set with the Kansas City Royals, who, yeah, they're bad. And guess what? Ten Royals, just shy of 40% of the roster, going on the restricted list. Reinforcements coming, but uh, you know where those reinforcements are coming from? The Omaha Storm Chasers. You know how the Omaha Storm Chasers are doing down at AAA? One game over 500. So 40% of this roster for this series will be made up of a 500 AAA team. Baseball's a weird sport. You can lose some of these. That's just the way it goes sometimes. But let's be real. The Jays have an opportunity to pick up some momentum here to get some wins back under their belt after a 3-9 and start to July. Uh, we'll talk with Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated about that Royals situation and how it might affect Major League Baseball's trade deadline. Uh, that's next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Alish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a Gaslight Anthem, a little song called Great Expectations, which is what the Jays were failing to meet this year. Charlie Montoyo deemed a capable peacetime consigliere, but they need a wartime one. They need to make a playoff push. They need to take advantage of teams like the Kansas City Royals, who are at the bottom of the AL Central, and who enter this series in Toronto, down 10 players who do not meet the vaccine requirements uh, to come play here, to help us sort through that. Senior writer at Sports Illustrated, Stephanie Epstein. Stephanie, before we get into specifics, are you as tired as I am of the same COVID story every time a new team comes to Toronto? Probably not as tired as you, but close. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's a lot, especially the, I was so thankful. I click on your article at Sports Illustrated, breaking all this down. And first sentence in the second paragraph is like, by the way, this is the restriction in the United States too. Uh, so thank you. The, the, this continually being framed as a Canada fascism issue or a dictatorship issue or whatever. Uh, I appreciate you pointing that out. So thank you, Stephanie. I think you got to stop reading your uh, Twitter mentions. Those are the, the people on Twitter are also pretty seem pretty upset about their framing. I think most reasonable people understand that this is a border issue and borders in all directions can make their own laws and have. Uh, but yeah, it is a lot of people seem not to quite understand how this works. Yeah. And when you say it's Twitter mentions, but it was also JT Real Muto earlier this week. So, well, that's a good point. It is a good point. Um, I, well, I'm patting myself on the back there, but you did have this sports <laughs> yeah. illustrated piece, uh, unvaccinated Royals lay bare their lack of commitment. And the nut of that piece is that this isn't just a health thing, even though 
there's overwhelming data to suggest it is a health thing, um, if not for themselves, then for communities and the organization, things like that. But this is also a competitive thing. Yeah, I mean, look, this tells us the people who are unvaccinated at this point are telling them telling us something about how they view their place in society. And that's probably not the uh, the area that Sports Illustrated attempts to cover. But people who are unvaccinated who play for baseball teams that intend to play in another country outside the United States, that's that tells us a lot about who they are as teammates and as baseball players, I think. And I think that's one thing that is kind of getting lost is what these guys do to their teammates and what it says sort of about how much they value, you know, this thing that they say is all consuming and means everything to them that, that they, you know, they don't, maybe they don't value it as much as they say they do. And in some cases, like Whit Merrifield said that he might reconsider his position if he got traded to a contender that had a chance to face Toronto in the playoffs. And I think that, you, you know, he, he, he basically said it himself. Like this team isn't good. So I don't care about my teammates. If I played for a good team, maybe I'd start caring about them. It's a, which is a terrible, terrible message to send when you're supposed to be one of the leaders on a, a young ish team, I think. And there were, you know, other Royals who said different and better things. I think it was Nikki Lopez who was like, huh, I'm suddenly the vet. That's, that's cool. I guess I'll <laughs> be the vet now. Um, but Merrifield's won. Um, there were reports today that Andrew Benintendi isn't off the trade market for AL teams because there's a belief that he could still get vaccinated uh, if it meant getting traded to a, a playoff team and things like that. How do these guys go back into that locker room after this series? And, like, if you're Whit Merrifield, say, and you are one of the vets here, you know, you're 33 years old, and you look down one of the young players, um, Vinny, who, who's up now, you, you look to him and you try to talk to him about a sacrifice he needs to make for the team or for his game or something like that. How do they do that? Like, I, I feel like these guys have undercut themselves as as leaders, at least as it pertains to issues that are about winning. Yeah, I think they have. Um, and I think it, you know, I, th- I think it depends on the team. Like, as these guys have pointed out, this is not, you know, a team that's going anywhere in the standings. And so maybe there, if, if there's not that collective commitment to winning, then maybe it's easier to walk back into the clubhouse because maybe everybody's sort of counting down the days until the off season, but, or maybe more people are, but I think, I think that's something you would have to consider if you're thinking about acquiring one of these guys, even if he is willing to get vaccinated, can his teammates trust him? Yeah, that's a, it's a big thing. And, and you have to wonder too, um, you know, to, there's the trade market side of this and there's a part of that now is not just the, are you getting a player who's vaccinated and eligible, but are you getting a player who is as committed to winning as you would hope with a deadline acquisition? And, you know, I know that if it, if it goes to, you go to a better team, um, it's different. And I just, I feel for Dayton more when he goes up there and he says, this is disappointing. I think it'd be different if the standings were different. Um, I don't know what you do differently as a franchise. Like most teams have figured this out. We even have the Red Sox were a pretty famous holdout with like Tanner Houck not coming here and the Red Sox blowing a couple games, but they've had multiple players say since then ahead of the playoffs, they're probably going to consider it. Um, and, and change their stance on it. If you're in a position like Dayton Moore, and look, hopefully this is the last year we ever have to deal with it. Hopefully the pandemic kind of eventually subsides. But how do you navigate this as a front office? I don't know. I think it's I think it's really hard, and I'm not in there for the conversations. I mean, Dayton was telling me that they, you know, they've been talking about this for two years. They 
they're, they're, they're administering vaccines at these guys' homes to them and their family. If they decide they want them, they're making it basically as easy as possible. And I think that's part of what is frustrating about all of this is that people talk about a personal choice, and it, it is to an extent, but personal choices have consequences on other people. And also, these people have more resources than almost anyone else in the world, and they have not sort of decided to use them to come to the same conclusion as every credible scientist. Uh, I mean, they like if the trainer, if the team trainer told them, you you know, you've pulled an oblique and this is what we prescribe as treatment for it. I don't think very many of them go and do their own research about this. So it seems like people who are at this point, players who are not vaccinated are sort of making a willful or being willfully ignorant. And I think that it, it look, sometimes the talent outweighs that, but I think that's just, that's just another, they talk about makeup in baseball. That's just something that you want to know when you're constructing a team. Yeah. And Whit Merrifield, like a part of his answer, and I don't think he meant to say it was like, yeah, I did some of my research on social media. It's like, okay, well the team has doc, like uh, again, to, to draw the parallel um, that you've drawn, like, if a player tore his ACL and was like, no, I'm not undergoing surgery. Uh, I, you know, someone on Twitter told me that this would heal differently. Uh, I feel a little bit like I'm taking crazy pills that we're still having these conversations. Um, but here we are. So um, zoom out a little bit. The effect that this could have on the trade market. You, I, I think I know your answer from, from our first 10 minutes here, but if you're a Boston Red Sox or a Toronto Blue Jays or a, a Houston Astros, are, are these guys just, off the board for you like are you even bothering i i probably wouldn't be i mean if it's true that there are some players who are willing to get vaccinated if they get traded to a contender look that's probably not a guy i want around long term but if you think that he can help you you know make the push maybe you maybe you go get him i i don't know i think it's it's definitely something you take into consideration and there have been reports that the yankees have pulled out of the benintendi sweepstakes because hmm. they don't really want to deal with this their whole team is vaccinated they've got a good thing going they you know it's not worth it this yeah. is a distraction the yankees and astros are the two best teams of the american league and they're fully vaccinated um and i'm not saying that it's causal i'm not saying getting vaccinated makes you better at baseball but those teams have at least decided that that's they're in a part competitively where Every little edge or every little edge lost matters significantly. And they've proceeded like that from a baseball uh, standpoint. And I want to ask yeah, you, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's important to point out that it, no one is suggesting that being vaccinated, you know, makes you a better hitter or anything. <laughs> it's more that in addition to all of the public health implications, it demonstrates a commitment to winning yeah. and that, you know, we, we ask you ask them not to go out at night to do like, before a game, you know, do something fun, do something that, you know, short term would be that would they might prefer for the good of the team. And this is something sort of similar. And so it's, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily about their having antibodies, although it does. I mean, it does make you less likely to infect the rest of your team. It makes you less likely to have to go on the COVID IL, all these things, but it also suggests that you sort of have your priorities in the same place as your teammates do. Yeah, and what, what's the old saying? The best available, the best ability is availability. Well, you just made yourself right. unavailable for for four games that for a different team would matter. Uh, you have to think the uh, the other teams in the uh, American League East are also a little annoyed. Like, hey, uh, it'd be helpful if the Jays lost one or two of these uh, because it is so tight in the AL East. And I wanted to ask you about that because you've written recently uh, about the Rays and the front office's need 
to get uh, a little creative again. Shane Baz is hitting the IL. Uh, you've written not too long ago about the Orioles and how they were starting to turn it around. And guess what they did right after you wrote that article, Stephanie? Uh, <laughs> they started to turn it around, and now we have five 500 teams in the AL East. Uh, how fun a stretch run do you think this is going to be? Yeah, I mean, not to pander too much to your audience, but it's, <laughs> it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for uh, incomplete teams that come to Toronto and lose because no team has been more affected by all of this than the Jays. And, you know, they've managed to compile a vaccinated team that can travel and play baseball. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm sure the other American League East teams are kind of like, wow, I wish this, this is not a great uh, advantage. This, this is a pretty big disadvantage for us, but, you know, I think playing in Dunedin and Buffalo was also a pretty big disadvantage for the Blue Jays. So it all, maybe it evens out or it gets closer. But yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's, you know, every team in that division is over 500 now, and it's every game between these guys matters. And I think that's really fun. I think that's, that's what we should all be looking for from all the teams. Everybody is trying, and everybody is, has, I mean, has some, perhaps a different level of shot, but everybody has a shot. Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated, I have one more question for you before we let you go. Kyle Farnsworth. Sure. Kyle Farnsworth <laughs> from journeyman uh, pitcher to absolute jack show. He's now a professional bodybuilder. How, uh, what was it like t- telling that story and reporting that one out? I-, I don't think any of us would have ever imagined in our career we're going to be ta- we're going to be writing the baseball player to professional bodybuilder pipeline story. Yeah, that was a new one for me, but uh, his trainer was saying it's actually not as different as you would expect because these guys are used to a routine. They're used to a restrictive diet. They're used to uh, making sacrifices some something we just talked about. And so it's not actually a huge, it, it, it's sort of, you can follow why something like this would happen. Uh, it was, it was fun to talk to him. This is not an area. I know too much about. Uh, I don't think it's an area he knew too much about before he got into it. But a lot of athletes talk about after retirement, they're so used to having a goal, and it feels very weird not to have one anymore. So he figured I'm in the gym all the time. I might as well give myself something to work toward. And he decided it was bodybuilding. Uh, he said he thinks he's one and done because he got very hungry uh, during the, the weight-shedding period at the end, and he said his family didn't like him very much when he was that hungry and cranky. So he's not sure he's going to return to that but he said it was fun and you know we'll see well it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to read um certainly a, a more fun story than, than hey more guys are unvaccinated and don't understand uh, but we appreciate you coming on and, and helping us sort through it stephanie uh keep up the great work and, and thanks again thanks for having me stephanie Epstein, a senior writer at sports illustrated again her piece was called um unvaccinated Royals lay bare with their lack of commitment. And again, however you feel about an individual's choice, and there is data that suggests those individual choices have effects beyond the individual, you can put that aside and it's still a baseball decision. The rules are the rules. And even if you don't agree with the rules or you don't like the rules, they're in place. Uh, It's the same thing from, you know, it's not the exact same thing, but like you can't doctor balls anymore or you'll get kicked out of the game. You get caught doctoring balls, you get kicked out of the game. I'm sure some guys would love to doctor balls still, but that's the rule. And it's the same here, and it affects the Jays more than any other team, so I don't have sympathy for these teams. Anyway, hopefully this is the last time we have to talk about this. Uh, Short of the Jays acquiring Andrew Benintendi or uh, facing the Red Sox at home in a playoff series, 
I don't know that this is going to come up again. By the way, you know how you uh, get to play the Red Sox while you're at home in a playoff series? You start winning some games. They've done that two in a row. They now face the Royals for four with 10 players missing. The Royals put out the longest Twitter graphic imaginable just now. And uh, so to refresh you, if you hadn't heard the names, Andrew Benintendi, Dylan Coleman, Hunter Dozier, Cam Gallagher, Kyle Isbell, Brad Keller, MJ Melendez, Whit Merrifield, Brady Singer, and Michael Taylor all hit the restricted list for the Royals. That is seven players, two starters, a reliever. That is 57% of their runs scored this year. That is both their catchers. That is six more or less everyday players. In a corresponding move, the Royals have recalled Nick Prado, Michael Garcia, Sebastian Rivero, Angel Zerpa, and they've selected Nate Eaton, Freddie Furman, Brewer Hicklin, and Michael Massey. Have you heard of any of those players? Some baseball hardcores, especially the prospect focus, maybe have. I would guess the average Jays fan has not. Eight of those names come from, seven of those names, rather. I can't count today, guys. I'm sorry. Four, five of those names come from AAA Omaha, uh, where the Storm Chasers are a 500 team. A couple others come from AA Northwest Arkansas. Those are not MLB-ready fill-ins, I don't think. And if they were in the season the Royals are having, they probably would have gotten a taste of the majors by now. So that's the Royals side. That's who's coming in to replace. I don't think we need to do a whole breakdown of those pieces. What we do need to do a breakdown of, however, is the new Toronto Blue Jays batting order. Here's how the Blue Jays will line up for game one of this series. Leading off in center field, George Springer. No surprise there. Hitting second and playing first base, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Up to the two spot. Hitting third and DHing is Alejandro Kirk. In the four spot, playing shortstop, is Bo Bichette. Everything more or less flows from there the way you'd expect it. Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Matt Chapman, Santiago Espinal, Danny Jansen. It's your top nine, unless you really like trying to wedge a lefty in somewhere. Uh, poor Kevin Biggio hasn't played in a little while. Uh, but what you're looking at here, not only is it putting your best foot forward with your, your best nine, and you could quibble with one of those, maybe, but it's close to the best nine, if not the best nine. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is up to the two-hole. Bo Bichette slides to the four-hole. Alejandro Kirk gets the three-hole. This is something that we've talked about even before Jays Talk Plus existed. I remember talking on Jays Talk in the preseason about batting order optimization. And... It's a tough thing for me as someone who comes at things from a a pretty analytic perspective. And I don't think I'm an analytics guy, but I want the numbers to, if they're available, back up the decisions that I'm making or help guide the decisions that I'm making. And we know that in the macro, in the big, big picture, hitting your best player second is the way to optimize your lineup. And that's in part because they still get a leadoff hitter in front of them for RBI opportunities, they get up about 25 to 30 times more often over the course of the season than the hitter behind them. And they're usually a good OBP person to set the table for power hitters to follow. 
There's a counter to that, though, and the, there are two counters, two primary ones. The first one is that some players are more comfortable in other spots, and maybe you just want to go with that. If Vladimir Guerrero Jr. tells you he's most comfortable hitting third and that's where he wants to hit every day, there's some value to that. It's hard to measure, but there's some value to that. The other counter is that if you're talking over the course of the season, yeah, these things have a, a big impact, but you're going to have lineup juggling. You're going to have guys in and out of the lineup hurt or slumping or streaking, and you'll move people around. The game-to-game -game difference between a fully optimized lineup and a slightly less optimized lineup are not that extreme. You're talking about fractions of a run often to the second decimal place, not even one decimal place. So it's not a huge deal game to game. You still want to see it though. And you want to see them try something different. And I think what makes the most sense here, not only is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. your best hitter, but he's a high OBP guy and you get him on base. Boba Shett has one of the lowest on base percentages of anyone who's hit one, two in the lineup in baseball this year. So Bo Bichette, by results, has done a poor job setting the table for the middle of the order. Bo Bichette also has a profile that I've maintained forever, fits better in kind of a 4-5 slot. He is hyper-aggressive. You don't want him to get away from that. If there are runners on base, he's probably going to see the odd, fast, the odd extra fastball. Pitchers in general pitch a little worse out of the stretch. Bobachet being as aggressive as he is is more of a four or five hitter profile than it is a table setter profile. Some of the counters you get on this stuff is, well, a guy doesn't hit that well in this spot or that spot. That can be true if you have enough data, but there are a lot of things you have to control for it. Did someone move in the lineup because the guy setting the table for them or the guy protecting them in the order isn't there? You got to work through all those kind of things. Did they move up and down the lineup because they were already slumping or already streaking? However, we can at least look at the data that we have available and see if there's any, there are any red flags that say this shouldn't be the move. So let's look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bobachet. They're the two primary ones here. Yes, Kirk is moving a spot, but Kirk has moved all over the lineup this year. Vladimir Guerrero in his career has hit second for 69 games. He has an OPS of 755 in those. That's not great. That's less than what you'd expect from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's played 254 games batting third with an OPS of 932. Way better. Uh, hitting lower in the lineup, 35 games cleanup, 633 OPS, and then uh, crushed it in the five and six hole, which you're never going to drop him down that far. So you don't really need to concern yourself with it. So you might say the numbers are much better when he's hitting third than when he's hitting second, because that's true. But there's a big kind of flashing sign there that is, uh, you know, a counteracting variable there and it's uh, or a confounding variable rather. And it's that the large, large, large share of his plate appearances while hitting third came last year. And this year, most of his opportunities hitting second were in 2019 when he wasn't this version of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. yet. So you have to consider that. We're going to need a bit of a sample before we can say anything about whether Vlad's better or worse in either of those spots. Uh, let's do the same activity for Boba Shett. 
in his career, 192 games hitting second, 799 OPS. That's fine. It's not quite Bo's average, but it's about his average. Hitting first, 871 OPS. Uh, it's where he's had the highest OBP. Maybe there's a shift in his strategy when he's in that spot, or maybe it's just that that was 2019 and that's what he was tasked with doing um, back in 2019 before he was the fully realized version of Bo Bichette. Hitting fourth, he has an 850 OPS. That's significantly better than when he's hitting second. And again, there's noise here that you're going to have to separate out. 51 of those 57 games came last year in Bo's career year. So it's not a slam dunk that that'll hold up. But we do that exercise to at least be able to say there is not a red flag saying don't do that or you can't do that. We've talked a bunch on this show about if Bo Bichette needed to move down in the order because that suits his style better. Or does Vlad need to move up? Or do you just need to shake things up for the sake of shading, shaking things up? They're shaking things up. Coming off of two wins, they'll change the batting order again. The batting order tonight goes Springer, Guerrero, Kirk, Bichette, Teoscar, Guriel, Chapman, Espinal, and Jansen. Kevin Gosman on the hill. We still don't know who's starting for the, the Royals at this stage. Uh, it'll be, it sounds like it's going to be a, a bullpen day or one of those call-ups we mentioned. Uh, one other piece of news here from our pal, Caitlin McGrath of the Athletic. George Springer has decided not to play in the All-Star game. He's going to use his time to rest his elbow. Major League Baseball will announce his replacement a little later today. So that's uh, that's worth noting for sure. Uh, Springer is going to use that time for additional rest. I don't think any Jays fan is going to argue with that. They might even argue they'd be okay with Vlad doing the same. It's uh, you know, Kirk's the big story, the first time All Star, the the fun, one of the most fun stories in baseball. So uh, again. Quick wrap, Gosman's back in. Ten Royals are out. Guerrero, Kirk, Bichette are your two, three, four hitters. Uh, We'll continue to set this one up. We'll talk to Caleb Joseph, who played under Charlie Montoyo, and who has a good handle on Kevin Gosman, who starts tonight. Uh, Caleb Joseph next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays. Looking to keep it rolling. Two in a row, they'll go for a third as they tee off a four-game set uh, to mix metaphors there with the Kansas City Royals. That game starts at 7.07 tonight. Uh, Ben Wagner with the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network, and of course, it'll be on television as well. Uh, Quickly, as we noted before the break, Kevin Gosman starts tonight, as was confirmed last night. Uh, What wasn't confirmed last night, it is now. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., your new two-hitter. Bobachette down to the four hole. We got to ask Caleb Joseph about some other stuff, but we're going to, we're going to get his take on, on that tweak as well. Uh, we're joined now by sometimes sports ed analyst, Caleb Joseph. How are you, man? Hey, doing well. What's up, Blake? Uh, I guess first question, just what was your reaction when you heard the Charlie Montoya news yesterday afternoon? 
Yeah, I was a little bit shocked, um, but saying that, not shocked, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I First and foremost, Charlie, I, I played for Charlie in 2020, that 20 season, and I, I just remember so many amazing things about him and just in terms of the man he is, and he gave me a shot in 2020, and I'll never just forget him. Uh, fighting for me uh, to to put on that Blue Jays uniform. And so one of the most well-respected men in the game and just an amazing family guy. Uh, you could trust him. He was he was even killed the entire time. You knew what you were going to get with, uh, with Charlie at the helm. And so it is, uh, I think John Schneider said it best, it is a little bittersweet in that, um, you know, the team, if, if the season ended, right now the team would be in the playoffs. And so um, I'm sure he might be feeling a little, little odd uh, taking the team, you know, into, into a a playoff position if it ended right now. But at the same time, um, there, there are lofty expectations for this club. And when the expectations aren't met, people lose jobs. And I unfortunately experienced that in 2018 with the Orioles and we, at that time lost, like, I think it was 113 games or something. And just about everybody lost your jobs, their jobs. So when expectations aren't met, um, people tend to lose their jobs. And unfortunately, a lot of times it is, it is the managers uh, and coaches and hitting coaches and pitching coaches that kind of go first. So you haven't been through an in-season manager change as a player, Um, but you have been a, a vet and a voice in a locker room and, and a guy, you know, you were the vibes coordinator as your, uh, as your Twitter bio once said, um, what is, what is a vet on this team trying to do right now to help manage this transition? Well, I, I think you got to answer three questions, Blake. It's who are you? Where do you want to go? And how do you get there? And for me, that was kind of my, goal during the 2020 season was to try and create an atmosphere where we knew who we were as a team. Um, We knew exactly where we wanted to go. Every team wants to go and play in the world series, right. And win a world series, but how are you going to get there? And so during that 2020 season, we talked a lot about cleaning up the fundamentals of the game. And for me, that over the past couple of years is just what has kind of been lacking. And it is so easy to point to, some guys on offense underperforming, especially when they've put up monster years, uh, the bullpen just being back and forth, the inconsistencies of the pitching. But there are little plays in every single major league game that a lot of people just overlook. And there are tiny little 90-foot increments given and taken. There's a, a, a routine double play that's not made that starts to impact the ebb and flow of a 162-game season, right? So if you don't make that tailor-made double play, maybe it forces the starting pitcher to throw an extra eight pitches, an extra 12 pitches, which might end up costing him an extra inning on the back end, which now you have to bring in an, an extra reliever. And over the course of 162, these things are massive and the margin for error is so small in the big leagues and it is really really tough to win a major league game and so if you think you're just going to roll the balls out because you have a really talented team you've got uh, a lot of really nice core players and you've added some really good players in Springer Chapman ETC the 
uh, Gosmans and, and, and the emergence of stripling. If you think you can just roll the balls out there and go compete and win a championship, it is totally unrealistic. And so kind of circling back to your question as kind of an older player, you hope that that comes from the top and it filters down into your leaders. And then those leaders can go and police it. But if there is kind of a little bit of gray area in, well, really, who are we, where do we want to go and how do we get there? If there is a little gray in that area, the level of the ladder starts to get kind of windy and it doesn't really lead to exactly those three questions. And so I'm trying to, meet with Snyder, figure out who we are, where do we want to go and how do we get there? And hopefully it's, it's, it's the Bichette, the Guerrero, the Springer, the Chapman, those type of guys, figure that exactly, figure out exactly those, those questions. And then hopefully go in there and be able to implement it to some of the younger guys. But if you're not getting it from some of those leaders, unfortunately you have to do that as a manager and as a staff. And so I think maybe a little bit of that is what was missing to be honest with you. Yeah, I could I could see that for sure. And so in addition to playing under Charlie Montoyo, uh, you also would have interacted with John Schneider and been around John Schneider. Uh, what are your expectations for him sliding into this role? And, and, you know, if you imagine anything being different, what that is with uh, with John in place of Charlie? Yeah, I. I was able to interact with him quite a bit in the 2020 season. He was overseeing a lot of the catching. And so we, we communicated quite a bit and I felt very confident in his ability to pay attention to those details of the game, be a stickler for the little things and to call it out, bring it out into the open so that everybody's on the same page and not be afraid to, to have a little bit of, I don't want to say discipline. That always sounds like a, an iron fist and somebody that is uh, tough and rough, but accountability, it's accountability. And if you can hold people accountable in this game, it is pretty unbelievable. What can happen? Look, men want to be led, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be led. And even alpha males, they want to be led. They want to get behind somebody that's steering the ship, especially when they believe in the person and where the direction of that, that, that person wants to go. And so I expect John to be that guy. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to be with uh, uh, an iron rod whipping guys around, but he has the respect of the guys in the clubhouse. And I, I don't think much is going to slide past him. I think he's going to expect a level of execution with the details of the game. And that's going to bring these guys closer. And look, that's what all the stories and movies are about, right? Mm -hmm. The stories and movies that we love, especially we love the underdogs that over and outperform their expectations, right? Well, how do they do that? They do it most of the time with the group coming together and creating this sense of chemistry and culture. And how do you do that? You got to answer those three questions. Who are we, where are we going and how do we get there? And so if you have 26 guys truly pulling on that same rope, you don't have one sheep wandering off and then leads to two and then leads to three. And then before you know it, you're, you're actually moving in three or four different directions. I expect him to do that. Um, he, he's a great communicator and he has a really excellent way of being able to deliver those type of uh, messages uh, in the perfect way that, that doesn't make guys defensive yet challenges them to be um, accountable to not only themselves, their teammate, but the organization and especially a country. I mean, the Blue Jays players, you get to play for an entire country and 
it means a lot. And so I, I expect him to, to be able to do that. And I'm excited to see the direction that this club starts to take. Um, K- Caleb, one of the things we didn't see yesterday was John Schneider make any material changes. Obviously, it was a busy day. You don't want too much disruption at once. But he has made a change today. He told uh, media before the game that he talked to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette about potential lineup combinations, uh, batting order combinations of late, and they were on board with the switch. That switch will see the top four in the Jays' order go like this. George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Alejandro Kirk, Bo Bichette. Vlad in the two-hole, Bo in the four-hole. What do you think? I love it. Um... I think it was about three or four weeks ago, the Boston Red Sox came into the town and they had shuffled up some of their big boys. And I think it was Devers, Bogarts, and Martinez. Those are perennial all-stars, okay? And you can obviously tell that their manager has their respect and they're pulling for one goal and that's a championship. And so when there's no egos in the room, which I don't believe there's egos at all, all it takes is a little bit of trust and uh, buying into what the manager, in this case, John Schneider, is trying to get across and that let's win a championship. Put your ego aside, let's win a championship. And that just speaks to the relationship that he has and it speaks to their trust in him already. And so that's big. It's huge that you can have a conversation man-to-man and get the point across and there not be any feathers ruffled. I love it because... You know, Bichette's in the, like, the top five or seven in the league in hits, I believe. Uh, it's been a week or so since I actually looked up the stat. But, I mean, the guy gets hits, right? And I, I, I love him in that kind of four-hole um, to be able to produce runs with those hits. He has an ability to go to right center field. He has the ability to, to shorten up and, and, and do stuff with two strikes. And, and Vladdy moving up to the two-hole, it, it's, it's just a, a possible – additional AB every four or five games when that lineup turns over and it protects George also. And it just, uh, you know, both protecting George as well, but I, I love the shakeup. I love kind of Kirk in that three hole. He hits, you could throw the rosin back up to him and he would hit a double <laughs> off the right center field wall. Right. So it doesn't really matter. I, I, I love it. And again, it's just, you know, you, you can't do the same thing and really expect a different result. Right. So it looks like there's some really big direction moving for the Blue Jays, not only the manager, but now maybe a lineup shakeup and who knows? I mean, maybe some guys in the bullpen are going to be asked to do different things. Who knows? I I love it because I know the group inside that clubhouse and so many of those guys, they just want to win. And when they can put their egos aside and they want to win, they get behind the guy that is steering the ship. Magic can start to happen. Yeah, I don't think this team's too far off from finding their footing offensively and going on a little run again, at least at the plate. Uh, On the other side of things, Kevin Gosman returns tonight, uh, 11 days off after taking that liner off his foot and getting a bone bruise there. I'm curious, Caleb, when a pitcher is dealing with, and, and by all accounts, Gosman's good to go. They were very, very cautious with this, but... If it's a, a thought in his head at all, um, what are we looking at in his delivery and his approach that would be a warning sign maybe the foot isn't 100%? Yeah, it's his back right foot, which for him, a right-handed pitcher, is that stabilizing foot. So when he lifts his left leg up to start his windup, the foot, that the right one, the one that is planted into the ground, I'm looking for him to be able to, to kind of sit into that right foot and gather his entire 
weight and pressure on that right foot versus uh, when he starts his wind up and picks that leg up more of a push off of it. So the push off of it will indicate something might not be right there, but if he's able to really sit into that and uh, put all of his weight on it and load and gather on that back right foot and then start to explode towards the plate, that's what you're looking for. But don't expect a lot too early. It might take him four or five batters to kind of get into that rhythm. I know he's probably thrown a couple bullpens, but there is nothing that can simulate major league action and major league tempo, especially for a pitcher uh, when you've had 11 days off, as you said. So it might take a minute. So be a little bit patient. Now, if you start looking into the second, third inning and he still doesn't have it, that might raise some eyebrows, but I think early on, and he's a smart guy, like he's been around for a long time and he realizes that if he can't do the job that the team needs him to do, it makes no sense to go out there and risk it because you need God from now till October. You're not winning the the season tonight. So he's not going to push the envelope. If something doesn't feel right, I, I would, I would bet the farm that he's going to say something, but look for him to just really be loading on that back right foot and if he's able to do that I think he'll be in good shape so he will be pitching to Danny Jansen tonight Jansen's catching and hitting ninth uh, we've seen Jansen back a, a couple days now and one day behind the plate I don't mean this to be negative about Gabriel Moreno who you know as a young catcher showed us some, some really nice stuff when he was called up but the Jays record when it's Jansen or Kirk behind the plate versus when it's Collins Heineman even Gabriel Moreno, it, the the contrast is pretty stark. What is it that Danny Jansen brings back there that seems to stabilize his starters a little bit? Yeah, you, I mean, you said the word. The word that came to mind was uh, stability. It's trust. It's experience. It's creativity, right? So when the analytics department hands Moreno or even Kirk the scouting report, that is that is based on numerical values, right? And there are times in a game when, okay, we want to go up with the fastball with Gosman and we're going to finish him down with the split. That's what every analytic, analytical review will say in, in Gosman's repertoire tonight. But how do you get there? How do you get to that split down in the zone? Is it throwing a first pitch slider? Is it backing somebody off the plate? Is it maybe executing a down and away fastball? And those are the type of things that Jansen will bring because of experience. It has absolutely nothing to, to do or even say about Moreno. I mean, it, it, it is tough to call games in the big leagues and be able to maneuver in and out of lineups dependent on what that pitcher is giving you that day and or what that lineup is showing you that day. You, you've got to make left turns when the card on the wristband says make a right turn. There are things you have to do to navigate around a major league game. And that's what experience does. And once Gabriel Moreno gets that experience, he, he will, he will show up and do a great job. And that's what scared me about the prolonged absence of a Danny Jen is you have two very young catchers. And I had, I might've even told this story to you already. I had a first base coach in Baltimore, my rookie season that, that came up to me and said something profound. I will never forget. He said, buddy, they're, these veteran teams, the big boys, they're not scouting the pitcher. They're scouting you. 
and to see if you get into predictable patterns and if your game calling is predictable. And I never forgot that. And when you don't have gut feelings and you don't have experience behind the play, you tend to kind of go to a predictable pattern, which sometimes is analytics, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that over time you start to gather and it just takes reps. It takes repetitions. And look, you said it 12 and 19 when Danny was not, on, on, on the field, uh, during his absence, the team was 12 and 19. Okay. And it just goes to show that that veteran presence behind the plate is so important to stabilize that staff, to get them through some of these one or two or three inning stunts where a Kikuchi can't find the zone. A veteran has tips and tricks to be able to cut there and maybe work their magic. Or if Barrios just can't really get the feel of that spinning, curveball there's tips and tricks to put him in a position count wise and sequence wise to maybe get him his hand in the right spot those those are just learned over experiences and Danny brings that he brings everything I just said because he's been behind the plate over and over and over and over he's had a lot of good coaches Pete Walker one of the best was able to play with Russell Martin gain a lot of knowledge from him and so having him back is 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 critical to the success of not only the pitching staff but this team in my opinion Caleb, you mentioned your time with the Orioles. Before we let you go here, I know you're a Blue Jays guy now, but your former team, the Orioles, over 500 now, the hottest team in baseball, 10 wins in a row. Are they for real, or is this just a little bit too early for them? Uh, I believe it's a bit too early. I was actually talking to Jim Palmer, Hall of Fame pitcher and uh, Oriole legend a couple of days ago, and I, I called him. I said, well, what is this about? You know, what's going on? And yeah, he, he kept mentioning their their bullpen, and I agree. Their bullpen is so solid. And I mentioned this to Ben Wagner a, a couple weeks ago when the Orioles were in town. I said, the Orioles are going to play spoiler. You watch. They are going to play spoiler, and they have hit on a number of guys that are on the back end of their bullpen that are really, really doing well. And then you mix in a veteran here and there with Jordan Lyles in the rotation. Some of their young guys that have been up and down have kind of gotten – a, a better feel for what's going on. They added Chirinos, veteran catcher, okay, you know, that's able to really help some of these guys through some of those growing pains. They had zero experience behind the plate the last two or three years. I think some of these younger pitchers are starting to figure it out with the help of a Lyles and a Robinson Chirinos. But I'm telling you, I, I don't think they're for real, but but they will be spoilers. You watch, you, you mark my word right now, they when it comes down to September, when it comes down to late August, they are going to be really in the hunt and putting uh, some teams that are, that are really fighting for a spot in the L column. And that's going to really shift the dynamic of the race late in the season, in my opinion. Well, Caleb, I hope the Jays don't have 15 games left against them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I like the way they're going to be honest with you. I, 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 I like Snyder. I think that you're, I think you will see, a different, uh, I think they're going to show up with some real grit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that you get a team that, that shows up with some grit. It, it starts to do things inside that clubhouse and guys start to really, really start fighting for each other. And then they start to become a dangerous team. Pitching kind of shores up hitting gets on a roll. Maybe they add a couple of bullpen guys who knows, and then they take off. So I'm not, I, if the Jays play their game and the Orioles play the game, the Jays win. Yeah, let's uh, and let's see it. And we'll see if the Jays can do that uh, and get it moving against the Royals here. Caleb Joseph, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Looking forward to next time you're through the city. Yeah, you got it. See you later. Caleb Joseph, 
uh, occasional color commentary and analyst at Sportsnet, former Vibes coordinator with Seattle and Toronto, former catcher in Baltimore. What a time. Everything just coalescing to make Caleb the perfect guest. He's played under Charlie. He's worked with John Schneider. The Orioles are red hot. Uh, Man, everything other than he hadn't uh, played through an in-season manager change himself. But a lot of good stuff there from Caleb. Uh, And if you missed it, one of the things we talked about a little earlier in that interview was that Bobachet is now the team's four hitter, at least for tonight. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. moves up to two. Alejandro Kirk in the three spot. John Schneider telling media that he's liked that look for a while and he has been discussing potential lineup iterations with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bobachette. And uh, they're on board with the change. We have a question from Rob in Guelph uh, related to that. Um, first, he says Caleb explains it perfectly with Vlad has a much higher OBP profile and, and Bobachette is seventh in the league in hits. That's a good way to, to put runs together. Um, so Rob asks, why did it take so long to make this change? And are you worried about double plays with Kirk in the three hole? Um, Rob, why, in terms of why it took so long, um, inertia is a powerful force. You get guys into a spot for a season and a half and you sometimes the instinct is to roll with it and hope it resolves itself because you've seen those guys succeed in those positions before. That's the best answer I have for it. Um, or maybe just, you know, things had to get real bad before Bo and Vlad were eager to make that switch and see how it goes. I, I'm not sure, but those are the two explanations uh, you would throw at it. In terms of Alejandro Kirk and uh, double play potential there, I'm not too worried about it. You're going to have that anywhere Alejandro Kirk hits because he's not uh, the fleetest of foot. But he's been such a good hitter this year that you want him getting up as much as possible. You want him getting getting up in premium situations, which the three hole should allow him to continue to do. Um, yeah, it's a small concern. Maybe you have to get a little bit of a little bit creative in terms of uh, hit and run and things like that. If he's got two strikes, but that's a small drawback to having Alejandro Kirk in a premium spot in the lineup every day. I think that that kind of outweighs the rest of things there. Uh, we're going to take a break. You can keep those questions coming to 590, 590. We'll sprinkle them in through this last half hour we have. Uh, we're going to go through the Jays lineup and the lineup changes again. We're going to get a, we're going to do a very, very, we're going to see how much I can put together in one break uh, on now that we know the names of the Kansas City Royals replacement players. We're going to see if we can uh, fire through what some of those guys look like. Uh, and a quote here from Dayton Moore. Uh, on Kansas City Radio, uh, Sports Radio 810 WHB. This comes from Jason Anderson, who hosts the zone there. Um, When asked about, now this isn't about the vaccination status, this is about the player comments, specifically that if basically if the team were better or if they were in a playoff situation or got traded to a playoff team, maybe things would change. Dave Moore said, I was disappointed. Truthfully, I was disgusted. Uh, Again, to hammer home, it's a, baseball thing we're talking about uh 10 royals not here we'll go through some of the replacements we'll take a look at tonight's starting pitching matchup and we'll do a little bit more on Bo and vlad moving in the batting order uh, all that's next on jay's talk plus on sports at 590 the fan 
The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Might be the only voice or face you recognize uh, as the Jays take on the Royals tonight. Uh, Ten Royals not with the team on the restricted list due to Canada's vaccination requirements and the U.S.'s vaccination, just vaccination requirements in general. Uh, we have a, a Kansas City Royals lineup. It's something else. Uh, I did. I, I've always joked with friends that. And we tried to do it on the morning show a little bit, and I've done it with my pal Andrew Zuber in the past. But basically, give me two to three minutes, and I can sell you on someone from just their Fangraphs page or just their StatCast page. We got like seven or eight names thrown at us that the Royals are adding. Eight. Uh, I I am incapable of doing that for eight players during a five-minute break. But here's how the Royals line up tonight. Uh, We'll do... Our best. Edward Olivares leads off and is in left field. Uh, he only has 92 plate appearances at the major league level this year, but he has been pretty good at the plate. In fact, he'll have the best WRC plus by far of anyone in the lineup tonight uh, for the Kansas City Royals. Bobby Witt Jr. hits second. He's the name and player you'll probably recognize the most 352 plate appearances this year, slightly above average at the plate. And then it starts to get interesting. Vinny Pascantino, one of the most fun prospects in baseball, big lefty masher. He DHs. Uh, he's not off to a terrible start in his first 66 plate appearances, but it's not. It hasn't been gangbusters. As you'd expect, uh, a rookie hitter is going to take some time to make some adjustments. Manuel Rivera hits fourth. He's been just shy of league average at the plate over almost 200 plate appearances. So we're through four names. Not bad, right? Well, Ryan O'Hearn hits fifth. He has a WRC plus of 30. Uh, Not very good at all. I think that's a 30 I wrote down Uh, in 71 plate appearances. He'll be followed by Nick Prado, who is making his major league debut. He is the Royals' number one prospect, according to Fangraph's latest updates, uh, the number 40 prospect in baseball. Made a swing change not that long ago that opened up some power. And because he's a projects as a plus defensive player at first base, uh, he's, you know, become more and more of a prospect. You got to, we've talked about Spencer Horwitz on the Jays side and how, despite being a a lefty who can hit a little bit, uh, it's hard to find a position unless you can really mash from that spot, lest you end up as a Brett Wallace or David Cooper. So uh, it'll be interesting to see Nick Prado. He was hitting pretty well. At Triple A, uh, only hitting 240 for average, but a 374 OBP, a 484 slugging rate down there, and 17 home runs in 74 games. Uh, so watch for him. He's a lefty, uh, so watch for potential power there. But hot shot it into a major league debut. Maybe not the the best of ways uh, to get your feet wet. Following him in the order, another guy making his major league debut. Nate Eaton is playing center field, up from Triple A as well. Uh, he is basically a non-prospect. He's 25 years old. He wasn't, uh, Fangrass had him ranked as the number 34 prospect in the Royal system. Uh, so not great. He was having a, a pretty 
great year, though. He struggled at double A. He got the bump to triple A, and suddenly everything clicked. He was hitting 329 there. A little bit of power, a little bit of speed on the base paths. So that's Nate Eaton. He'll be followed by Nicky Lopez. Uh, poor Nicky Lopez, who has the best quotes from Kansas City about uh, the 10 players not being with him. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to take on a, a bigger leadership role. And now I'm one of the vets. Well, guess what, bud? You're still hitting eighth uh, because over almost 300 plate appearances, you have a WRC plus of 64. Uh, not great, but seems like a good guy. And he, he has some glove to him. So, oh yeah, Sebastian Rivero rounds it out. At catcher, he had been up with the team very, very briefly earlier in the year. Uh, went 0 for 8 or 0 for 7 with a walk, rather, uh, in his three games. And then was sent all the way down to double A, um, in part because they have other catchers available at triple A. Uh, in double A, he was hitting 220 with a 295 OBP. Not, not, not uh, very good. So that's what Kevin Gosman is going to be staring down. Um, Kevin Gosman, who was looking pretty good before he took that liner off his foot and suffered a bone bruise on July 2nd. Over the two starts and change that he'd had before that injury, uh, 15 innings, 20 strikeouts, only two earned runs. He had allowed 20 base runners, which is a little high for him, a 1.33 whip. But he's missing bats. Um, you know what to expect from Kevin Gosman at this point. 99th percentile chase rate, elite walk rate on the season, despite a recent uptick in walks. Uh, everything on his stat cast profile is good to great. Uh, the expected batting average is, the, is maybe the one thing that's a bit of a question mark, but um, you're fine. 95 mile an hour fastball, he'll throw half the time. 85 mile an hour splitter, he throws about 35% of the time slider and then an occasional changeup. His slider usage was up those last few starts and his fastball and slider have been a tick better of late. You know what to expect from Gosman. It's it's really just a matter of is he healthy? Is he feeling comfortable on that foot? Nice that he avoided the injured list. He missed 11 days. The Jays had to juggle the rotation a little bit, but you get a start in from him uh, before the break and you wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. You'd think... Gosman's in a good position here, given what we know about uh, the the Royals lineup that we're seeing here. Um, the other names that they called up, by the way, just for depth, uh, Freddie Furman, kind of a non-prospect catcher. Michael Garcia is an infielder. Um, the reports on him from Royals Review, the Kansas City Royals blog, are that he's excellent defensively around the infield uh, and can really run and draw a walk. He's not starting today, but that's an interesting enough uh, player profile. Brewer Hicklin is coming up to be an extra outfielder as well. Um, another guy that has been able to run and hit for power at the minor league level, but doesn't sound like a, a high, high end prospect. Michael Massey also up. Uh, middle infielder with some power again per Royals review. That's the book on him. And then the big one on Hal Zerpa, 22 year old lefty who is now listed as the starting pitcher for the angels tonight. Uh, he has made two appearances in the major leagues before one last year. He'd made a spot start through five shutout innings earlier this year. He pitched two innings out of the bullpen also shut out. This guy's never allowed an earned run before. 
over seven innings. Um, those earlier appearances were early. He's only 22. There's some developmental time left here. He had a pretty rough 2021, but he also bounced around all through the system. He went high A, he went to double A and was getting shelled there. He went to triple A um, and then somehow managed to work his way into a spot start. This year has been a little steadier. 13 starts at double A, 436 ERA. So not great. Doesn't miss a ton of bats. 9.4% swinging strike rate at triple A. So that's what to expect from Zerpa. Uh, not, I mean, this is another, like we've seen a lot lately. The Jays have run into some either non-prospects or, or non-elite arms, especially from the left side. Uh, he was a strikeout, more than a strikeout in inning, but the swinging strike stuff is tends to be what I look for when a pitcher's getting called up from the minors, and, and that's pretty unimpressive. We'll see. Maybe there's something to the Jays haven't seen him before and there'll be a little bit of unfamiliarity there. He leans at least in his previous starts in the majors. He's leaned pretty heavily on a fastball that sits around 94. He'll also throw a slider and a change up. The slider's a kind of a slow sweeping one clocks in around 83. Uh, and then the changeup actually in between them for velocity. So it would be interesting to see how consistent his release points are. If he tunnels those well, if there's some deception, to the Jays not having seen him before. And that's why he was, he's been able to go seven innings in the majors without allowing a run. Realistically, this feels like a good opportunity for the Jays new lineup to get going. Um, the Royals will also probably go to their bullpen fairly liberally in this one. That's a bullpen. That's been pretty bad on the year. I think they're 27th in bullpen ERA. They've been slightly better of late, uh, but you're also looking at Barlow, Garrett, Huas, and Piamps have all been pretty heavily worked of late. Um, also, because of the rules around replacing players from the restricted list, you can't replace all of them necessarily. Uh, if a pitcher wasn't due up, can't replace them. So they're running two players short right now. I'd imagine there are more transactions ahead this weekend for the Royals, uh, but that bullpen doesn't have a ton of reinforcement there. We'll see. They've got a couple guys that can go multi innings. Uh, Amir Garrett, who's always an interesting guy to me because he strikes out a lot of guys, but can't find the plate all that often. Uh, if that sounds like a lefty on the blue Jays starting rotation, uh, maybe that's familiar to you, but um, it's a little easier to stomach out of the bullpen. Scott Barlow is an interesting name too, because um He's a potential trade target, whether for the Blue Jays or another team looking for bullpen help. He's 29, almost 30 at this point. Um, not a free agent until 2025, so the Royals probably aren't in a hurry to move him. But a reliever pushing 30, who's in his second consecutive year of a sub-3 ERA with pretty good underlying stats, you might want to sell on that. You might want to sell high. I'd imagine there are a lot of teams who would be interested in Scott Barlow. So maybe you'll get a look at him tonight. Whoever pitches for the Royals in whatever order, they're going to see a new look Toronto Blue Jays lineup. Mentioned it earlier. Talked to Caleb Joseph about it a little bit. The Jays are mixing things up. John Schneider, 
said he's liked this look for a little bit and talked to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette about it. The Jays, if you missed it earlier, line up George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Alejandro Kirk, Bo Bichette, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Matt Chapman, Santiago Espinal, and Danny Jansen. Jansen catches Gosman. Kirk gets a DH. Uh, the big note there is the 2-3-4 is Guerrero-Kirk-Bichette instead of Bichette-Guerrero-Kirk. So it be interesting to see how that goes. Caleb Joseph was a fan. It's something that that was, I mean, Kirk wasn't in the three hole when we did these exercises before the season, because we didn't know how much he was going to play. Even the optimistic among us probably didn't think he was going to be this good so quickly, but Vlad in the two hole and Bo a little lower in the order fits their profiles a little better than the opposite. If they can get comfortable with it, I'm sure John Schneider will pivot off of it. If those guys struggle with it or, uh, tell him that, you know, hey, it's not working. I'm not comfortable there, whatever. We'll see how that goes. Um, our pal Julia Kreutz, by the way, is going to be covering the Royals side of this series for MLB.com. Uh, she tweeted out that she's covering the Omaha Storm Chasers this weekend in Toronto, which is true. A bunch of these guys are from the Omaha Storm Chasers who are barely a 500 AAA team. And then some of them are even coming up from double A. Ryan in Newmarket asks, love the idea of shaking up the batting order. What other sort of changes do you anticipate the skipper making? I, I don't think there are a ton. This has always been presented to us as a collaborative decision-making organization where the manager will take input from the analytics staff in the front office and the other coaches um, on the bench. You know, there's a good shared responsibility in terms of different assignments and, and tasks and things like that. And the batting order is one thing the the manager has maybe some hand in. Um, I'd assume this too, though, was a collaborative approach. And then you're also looking at the other thing that, that we can touch that a manager does, and Owen from Dundalk asked this, um, how do you think he'll use the bullpen differently? My, what I'd like to answer that is, well, he'll use the bullpen differently just naturally because the Jays will have better bullpen arms soon. Uh, I hope that's the case. I hope that's true. Uh, I don't know that it's imminent. So how would he use the bullpen differently? I don't know. Um, we're going to see the, the biggest way to judge that I think is, um, you know, especially now that we're in the three batter minimum era and you're not using, you know, your loogie or your Rugi or whatever, um, quite as narrowly you're looking at are your best pitchers pitching in the highest leverage spots. Jordan Romano's the closer. There's not much doubt there. Um, you know, the, extreme polarized analytics person would tell you that you, you don't, you shouldn't even have a closer. You should just use Jordan Romano in the highest leverage spot. If in the seventh inning, it's three, four, five in the order and it's a close game and that's a killer three, four, five, you should use Romano there. Certainly if it's the eighth inning and it's that part of the order, I think Romano's probably sticking in the ninth inning. It's there. You know, we know closers like to have that certainty of when they're coming into the game and things like that. Um, but how the other names shake out will be interesting because Adam Simbers had a really nice year, 329 ERA, hasn't, doesn't walk anyone on pace to threaten the franchise record for wins for a reliever. He's got eight already. 
but he doesn't miss bats, striking out fewer than seven batters per nine innings. And that's a tough profile to put in a high leverage spot sometimes, especially if it's a one-run game. Trent Thornton, who's down in the minors right now, uh, is second on the team in relief innings pitched. That was kind of the story with him, too. He kept giving them good outings in low leverage spots a couple innings at a time, and he got put in a high leverage spot as sort of a reward or moving him up the chain, and that didn't go that well. David Phelps could probably make an argument for more leverage spots. Um, Charlie Montoyo had really settled in using David Phelps as the if you have to bring in a reliever with runners on base guy. Uh, he had a very, very low rate of inherited runners scoring. Maybe he sticks in in that kind of role. Jimmy Garcia, I, th- I think we'll continue to see as kind of the the seventh, eighth inning righty, and, and they don't have many options on the left-handed side. So Tim Mays is going to stay in the mix there, even though uh, he's really struggled to miss bats of late. Nice appearance the other day, though, with three straight ground ball outs. Trevor Richards is probably the most interesting name here because he has the highest striker rate in the Jays' bullpen. So it's the highest walk rate. Pretty high ERA at 561. And he's a guy, though, that they'll trust for multiple innings. He's a guy that they'll try to throw in there to miss bats. I've never been a, a huge Trevor Richards proponent, but he'd be the guy I think I'm most interested in seeing. How does John Schneider... Sorry, hiccup. How does John Schneider deploy this guy and where is the trust level? Again, though, I think the the best possible answer to your question, Owen, is that uh, better arms need to be coming in and uh, uh, that's... Uh, that's a better approach. Uh, someone didn't sign this. Uh, they were trying to type in something about Spencer Torkelson, and it auto-corrected to Tortellini. Um, he wanted to keep it Tortellini, so uh, cool. Someone, uh, Colin and Barry asked, if you're the Royals, how do you go about creating a batting order when you're missing so many guys? That's a really fascinating question. I think what you start with is, well, how many guys have been here? And we know what they can do, and that's, you know, you fill out the first part of the order with that, and that's what they did. Their top four are guys you'd expect to be in the lineup most days anyway and probably in the top seven or so in the batting order. Um, From there, you maybe look at keeping lefties apart. They do have O'Hearn and Prado going back-to-back as lefties, so maybe that's a Tim Meza spot later in the game. Um, But realistically, it's who do you know and then who has had the most success in the minors or just what order feels like it flows best. I think Rivero was always going to be penciled in for that bottom spot because, again, he has a sub-300 OBP in AA and was 0 for 7 when he got called up earlier in the year. And then poor Nicky Lopez in the eighth spot. Uh, But, again, that's probably because there are a lot of lefties in this lineup tonight. So, Colin, that's a fun question. I don't know that there is a a great answer for that one. Uh, Rob texts in that the Jays don't profile that well against lefty sliders and four seamers. Um, That is true. I'd have to go through a little bit more and and look at some of the, I'd have to look a little closer at how Angel Zerpa's um, slider and fastball profile specifically. Some of the Jays left-handed pitcher data has been noisy because they've faced so few. And then they faced a bunch right as the team was sliding. And, And, you could certainly suggest there's causation there that they faced a bunch of lefties and and that's what got them uncomfortable. Uh, it's also possible that they faced a bunch of lefties when they just happened to be not dialed in and some of that data is messy. So uh, it, it's certainly something to watch. Angel Zerpa, by the way, uh, is listed 
as at Fangraphs at least as a presumed opener, not a full-on starter. Again, he's started in the minors, but doesn't have a lot of track record and doesn't miss a ton of bats. Uh, the presumed follower or bulk guy at that point will be Jackson Coer, uh, a righty, big righty, who's had not a lot of success this year. He has a 10-13 ERA working as a long man out of the bullpen, walks a lot of guys, doesn't miss enough bats to make up for it. Um, he was starting in AAA, 634 ERA down there, uh, 1127 ERA in the majors as a starter last year when he got the call. Not a lot of recent sample to suggest this guy's a major league arm, which makes sense because he's uh, you know he's in the bullpen as a as a long man and he's getting kind of jammed into a bulk guy slash spot starter role here. It's not ideal. Uh, not ideal for anyone there, really. Uh, more news coming in. Not a big one. We mentioned earlier uh, via our pal, Caitlin McGrath, that George Springer is sitting out the All-Star game. He wants to give his right elbow more time to rest. He is being replaced by Corey Seager of the Texas Rangers uh, in the All-Star game. So good for Corey Seager, former future Blue Jay Corey Seager, a member of the Texas Rangers spending spree this offseason. Have a nice year. 21 homers. Only hitting 245, but when he got 21 homers at the All-Star break, also a very, very low strikeout rate for a guy who hits for the pow- hits for power the way he does. Kind of think you're going to see that batting average come back up. He's only hitting 245. He's been a 300 guy the last two years. Power bats that don't strike out, especially from the left side and your middle infielder. That's a good player. Good choice as a replacement for George Springer for the all-star game. George Springer is playing tonight though. As a reminder, he leads off Vladimir Guerrero jr. Hits second Kirk and Bichette three, four as the Jays tweet things up under John Schneider. Kevin Gosman makes his return after 11 days off uh, due to a bone bruise on his foot. We'll see how he does. He'll be throwing to Danny Jansen who returned from the injured list earlier this week uh, and we hear great things about it. Uh, that series gets underway at seven Oh seven tonight. Ben Wagner on the call joined by Arden Zwelling on the Sportsnet radio network. We'll of course have that game for you on Sportsnet television uh, as well. Three brand new Kansas city Royals in the starting lineup today, including two guys making their major league debut should be a fun one. If a weird one, uh, thank you to Caitlin McGrath and Stephanie Epstein and Caleb Joseph uh, for joining us earlier. Again, Ben Wagner and Arden Zwelling on the call on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker have you post game for Jay's Talk. Jay's Talk Plus returns tomorrow, but at 5 o'clock instead of 3 o'clock. We'll do 5 to 7 and we'll lead right into that Friday night Jay's Royals game, potentially with the Jays on a three-game winning streak. This has been Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Have a great Thursday.